Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 23. We continue through our study in the Gospel of Luke. Um, like I said before, there's ESV Bibles right outside the door. If you if you want to grab one, that'd be helpful. It'll definitely be helpful if you've got a copy of God's Word open in front of you. You'll be able to follow along as, as we move through the passage. Um, in addition, there's a, an outline on the back of the handout if that's helpful for you to, to keep an eye on. Luke chapter 23, in particular, we'll look at verses 26 through 49. Um, I worked at a church on Capitol Hill in Washington in 2005, and uh, this church was actually a, a block away from the Supreme Court building. And in God's providence, my cousin was working at the Supreme Court at that time. He was clerking for Clarence Thomas, one of the justices of the Supreme Court. And so one afternoon, well, late afternoon, I was I was walking over there to meet my cousin, Jeff, and he's going to hand something off to me. And so he told me where to go. I was supposed to go into the front. I was supposed to come in through the back. So I'm walking around to the back and, and I didn't get too close to the building before a big beefy security officer started coming toward me um, with sort of an intense look on his face. And I thought this is probably not going to be good. Um, this guy it seems like recognizes that I don't belong here, which was true. So he's walking toward me. Well, thankfully, my cousin was standing inside the door and kind of keeping an eye out because he knew that that was going to happen. And so he comes out the door sort of at a fast pace and he's talking to the security guard. and He's telling him, hey, th this is my cousin, Scott. You know, he's he's with me, basically. So so there's a situation. I clearly don't belong there in that building. And my cousin, who does belong, is the one who is calling out and advocating for me and saying, no, no, he belongs there. Well, that's really what we see happening in uh, in our passage of Scripture this morning. But, but the good news for us as believers is that we're brought into something much better than a than a man-made building. So hear the word of the Lord, Luke 23, 26 through 49. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Well, I think we're going to be called on by the Lord to do at least three things in our passage this morning. That's the outline on the back. That's how we'll look at this passage. So first, consider God's coming judgment. It's the first thing I think the Lord is asking us to do. Second, remember that you deserve judgment. And finally, praise Jesus that he has saved you from this judgment. So look again at how our passage begins. Verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him a cross to carry it behind Jesus. So we've seen over the past few weeks, Luke doesn't really focus our attention on the physical abuse that Christ has to bear here in, in the lead up to the cross. But this very first detail would make it clear in this context, at least to folks that, that were around in the first century, this detail would make it clear that there was a lot of abuse that had occurred. Because the way that the Romans practiced crucifixion was they made that criminal carry his own cross. So the fact that Jesus can't carry the cross, people would have understood, okay, this guy has already been beaten. He's already hurt. He's already injured. That's why they have to enlist this other guy to, to carry his cross. So they get this guy named Simon to carry this cross behind Jesus. And we should notice right off the bat, this is a great summary of the Christian life. So all of us are supposed to see ourselves in this pattern. We're supposed to see ourselves as Simon. We're carrying a cross behind Jesus. In fact, Jesus has already used this imagery. He's done it twice in the Gospel of Luke. Let me read one verse, chapter 9, verse 23. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So the, the picture here, what the Lord's getting at by in his sovereignty, having this other guy, Simon, carry this cross behind Jesus, is that following Christ is a life of self-denial. Jesus even says it there in Luke 9, 23. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. It's a life of self-denial. That's what it means to carry your cross behind Jesus. You, you remove yourself from the center of your universe and you put Jesus there. Like we talked about in Christian growth group, we can't do that on our own, by the way. That's something that, that we don't have the power to do. Our human nature will always put us at the center of our universe. It's only the Holy Spirit that can displace us, take us off the throne in our hearts, put the Lord on the throne. But that's what we're called to do, to deny ourselves. Listen to the way that 16th century pastor John Calvin says it. He says, we are not our own. Let not reason and will, therefore, determine our plans or the things we need to do. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, look beyond what the flesh suggests is good for us. We are not our own. Let us, therefore, forget ourselves as much as we can. We are the Lord's. Let us then live and die for him. That's what we're aiming for as followers of Christ. That's, that's the picture of us following behind Jesus and carrying our cross, no matter the cost or the pain or, or the hardship. Those would be good things for us to pray for ourselves, right? Pray that more and more throughout your Christian life, you would think of yourself less, that you would think of the Lord more. Let's not only pray that for ourselves, pray that for our fellow church members. 
You know how difficult that is, but that's what we're called on to do as Christians. So, so Simon, he's carrying the cross behind Jesus as our Lord marches towards his crucifixion. And there's a crowd that's assembled to watch this take place. Now look at their reaction. The, the women in particular are noted here. Verse 27. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Okay, so we're told the women in this crowd, they feel sorry for Jesus. They, they see what it is that he's going through. For anybody evaluating the situation fairly, he hasn't done anything deserving of death. We see that noted a few times in, uh, in this passage of scripture. Look down at what one of the thieves next to him says to Jesus. End of verse 41, or says about him rather. This man, talking about Christ, has done nothing wrong. Well, he's innocent. This thief recognizes this. Look, look at what the soldier says at the end of verse 47. Certainly this man was innocent. So you've got this innocent man, and some of these women surely were disciples who believed that Christ was the Son of God. He, he's about to be crucified. And so for anybody understanding what, what's happening here, they'd have this same sort of reaction. They feel bad for Jesus. They're mourning. They're lamenting, verse 27 says. But Jesus doesn't welcome their sympathy. Instead, look at how he responds. Verse 28. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So basically he's saying, don't worry about what's in store for me. Worry about what's in store for you. Now that should get our attention because he's about to go and be crucified pretty bad. But he's saying, don't feel sorry for me. Feel bad about yourselves, about where you're headed, about what's in store for you. And of course, he's talking about God's coming judgment against sinners. And this is our first main point. Consider God's coming judgment. He says, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. So he's saying that their focus and attention shouldn't be on the unfortunate events of his crucifixion. Their focus and attention should be on the fact that God will one day come back to judge sinners. And they are part of that group. They are sinners. Consider God's judgment. And the reason Jesus tells them to mourn about God's coming judgment, this is clear to us, is because of how bad it is. The coming judgment is bad. It's scary. Look at verse 29. He explains this to us. Verse 29 for behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Okay, so on the day of judgment, it'll be better for the woman who has no children is what he's saying. So, so what's he getting at there? Well, it could be a couple of different things. It could be that he's saying on the day of judgment, sinners will lose everything they have. And so the more you have, in a way, it'll hurt more for that person who has a lot to lose when we think about children, even non-believers understand this. What a good, unique, special gift from the Lord. Our children. So the person in that situation has a lot to lose. He could be saying that. Or he could be using imagery of when an opposing army comes. So we talked about this earlier in the Gospel of Luke, where he prophesied about 70 AD when Rome would come and destroy the city of Jerusalem. And in that section, he says, hey, it'll be bad for nursing moms. Pray you're not a nursing mom. Pray you don't have little kids then. Why? Because it'll be hard to get away. You, you've got to run away, and it's hard to get away with, with little children. We went to the farmer's market yesterday, and uh, uh, Maria was gone, and so it was just me with most of the kids at least, and we put Emmy in a stroller. Ask me a hard question. 
you know, because we wanted to move quick and I knew the other kids would be moving quick. So we put the baby in the stroller. It's hard to move quick when you have when you have a little baby. So anyway, whether Jesus is going that route or the route that we just talked about, basically, he says uh, that God's coming judgment will be really, really bad. It'll be really bad. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Look at what he says next. Verse 30. Then they, the people there during the judgment, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. Jesus is quoting from one of the prophets. He's quoting from Hosea. This is Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. So this is something that was commended to me earlier in my Christian life. I found it really, really helpful. When you see something like that, where Jesus is quoting, or one of the New Testament authors is quoting the Old Testament, oftentimes your Bible, if you look down at the bottom, it'll give that reference. It'll say, oh, this is Hosea 10, verse 8. Now, unhelpfully, in the Old Testament, it doesn't do the same thing. I don't get it. That would be so helpful. But Bible publishers don't call me and ask for you know opinions. So what you can do, though, is you can turn to Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, and you can write in the New Testament passage that gets referenced there. And here's what that does for you. It makes your New Testament a commentary on your Old Testament. It helps you to understand what the Lord intends in Hosea chapter 10, for example, because you see Jesus quoted and you see the way he uses it. So here he quotes from Hosea chapter 10, verse 8, and he's talking about Israel being judged by the Lord. And he says, Hosea says, they shall say to the mountains, cover us and to the hills fall on us. We see the same kind of imagery in Revelation. You might be thinking, wait, I've heard this somewhere else. Revelation chapter 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Okay, so we get the picture, right? Jesus is saying God's future judgment will be so bad that the people standing underneath it will be hoping that the mountains would just fall on them because that would be a better situation for them to be covered rather than standing out in the open to receive God's wrath. When people stand before God to be judged for their sins, they would rather be dead. That's something, isn't it? Non-existence is better than suffering under God's judgment. God's judgment is bad. And this is why Jesus prays what he does. Verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So Jesus, who, who always only prayed perfect prayers for people, he, he knows that what this crowd needs more than anything else right now is for them to avoid God's judgment. Of course, he, he's praying for them to, to believe the gospel. Jesus knows that's the only way somebody can avoid God's judgment. So as he prays, Father, forgive them, he's praying that the means would be there to bring those folks to trust in him, to turn away from their sins so, so they don't have to be judged for their sins because they'll be trusting in, in Christ. And this is instructive for us, right? Jesus knows how bad God's coming judgment is. Therefore, he prays that God will save people from the coming judgment. So practically for us, there's lots of great things we can pray for our non-Christian family members and our non-Christian neighbors and our non-Christian coworkers. We can pray for their physical health. We can pray for their work situation. We can pray for their material needs, but the best thing we can pray for them. And I think scripture would indicate the thing we should pray for them more often than the other things we should pray for them 
is for their salvation, for them to be spared from God's coming judgment the way that Christ does here. Because again, God's coming judgment will be horrible. Look at the final thing Jesus says in this section about God's coming judgment. Verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? So remember, what started all of this was, was the people's sympathetic reaction to Christ. Oh, we feel bad for you. This thing you're about to do is, is bad. They're mourning about that. But he, he takes that response and he turns it on, on its head. And he says, if you want to mourn about something, mourn about God's judgment, because that'll be worse. That's what we've been talking about. And then he uses this picture of wood that's green and wood that's dry. And living in Maine for eight and a half years, we, we understood about green wood and dry wood. Because the majority of people that we knew heated their house, at least in part, with wood. So it was really, it's not like in the South where when you make a fire, it's for aesthetics, right? No, in Maine, it's so you don't, you don't freeze to death. So, so they, they knew a thing or two about how long it took wood to dry. You know, and as we were there, we, we learned about those things too. And so what Jesus is saying is that the green wood, which is the wood that has been cut down so recently that it still has a lot of moisture in it. So it doesn't burn well. You have to wait till it's dry. That moisture has dissipated after, after a long time. What Jesus is saying is the situation they are weeping about here, his crucifixion, that's a green wood situation. It's bad. For sure it's bad. But he says what you need to be worried about is God's future judgment, which for you will be a dry wood situation. It will burn much hotter for you than what it is that you're seeing now. So again, consider God's coming judgment. Verse 28 Returning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Consider God's coming judgment. But second, just as important, remember that you deserve this judgment. It's the second thing we're called on to see here. Remember you deserve this judgment. Let's see where we're getting at. Look at verse 33. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Okay, so he's taking them to this place called the skull. That's where we get the word Calvary, by the way. Calvary comes from a Latin word that means skull. The place of the skull, Calvary. So they, they take Jesus up to this place, and he's crucified. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you're not that familiar with the Bible, crucifixion was, was the Romans at this time. It was one of their forms of capital punishment. And, and what would happen is they would either tie a criminal up on a cross or they would nail the criminal up on a cross. We, we think that the majority of the time it was the first one where people were just tied there, but sometimes, and in Jesus's case, they're nailed there. And in either case, you've probably heard this, but again, if you're not familiar with this, you might not know this. Usually the, you would die because of suffocation because you couldn't pull yourself up. To pull yourself up, to be able to exhale and to inhale, you wouldn't be able to do that if you were tied on the cross. Of course, if you had nails in your hand and in your feet, there's also some trauma there and some blood loss. And so that's the way that these criminals would be killed. So they were just hung there until they expired, until they didn't have any life. They were dead. And that's what's happening to Jesus here. When we're told they crucified him. He, he's nailed hands and feet to a cross. He's left up there to die. And again, we see in our passage, it's enough to make the women mourn and lament and, and weep for him. Of all the humans who ever lived, Jesus is the one who is least deserving of dying at all much less dying in, in this sort of way, and, and they murder him on a cross. But see, it's more than just taking his life 
And it's more than just the physical pain. The, the people here in our passage continue to employ the kinds of teasing and shaming that we saw a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Luke. Look at what they do right after Jesus prays for them. End of verse 34. And they cast lots to divide his garments. That was kind of like rolling dice to see. So some of our kids, kids never want to take a bath first, never want to take a shower first. And so we started this thing years and years ago where we'll flip a plate. So we'll take one of these plastic kids' plates and I'll say, okay, whichever the younger kid gets to pick, you want the top or the bottom, flip the plate. It's great fun. Everybody gathers around. It's great fun until the kid that finds out they're going first sees that they lost. What's that kind of thing here? They're rolling the dice and they're rolling the dice to see whose clothes or who gets Jesus's clothes. Isn't that crazy? Think about how dehumanizing that is. Not only are they taking his life, and that happens in our country, capital punishment, which the Lord says, by the way, is a good thing. That's actually a gift to mankind. That actually makes sense of the fact that humans are created in God's image. But think about it in our culture, when, when somebody is, is committed to die because of, because of their crimes, there's nothing like this that's happening. There's nothing dehumanizing like this. They're, 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 they're rolling dice to see who gets his clothes. Look at how they talk down to him. Verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. So once again, they're making fun of his claims to be God's son. They're teasing him. That's why they put the sign over the cross, verse 38. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Now, they don't believe that, but they're, they're making fun of him. They're putting that there so other people can laugh about it. But they're not just teasing him, they're, they're also testing him to, to see if he's really the Messiah. Of course, they don't think he is. But they say, yeah, if you're the Messiah, you should be able to just miraculously come down off the cross. They're testing him, verse 37, and saying, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. Look at what one of the men next to him on the cross next to him, look at what he says. Verse 39, he makes this demand. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, that means yelled insults railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So see, this is the way that humanity is responding to the crucifixion. This is the way they're responding to the Son of God hanging on the cross. And at worst, the people are teasing him and testing him and making demands of him. But even at best, they're just standing by watching, letting other people tease him and test him and make demands of him. Verse 35, and the people stood by watch him. And see, because Jesus is fully God, the human race is doing all of those things to God. Is that not madness? It's crazy. The way that they're treating Christ, that they're treating God. These people, they deserve judgment, don't they? They deserve judgment to sum up the way they think about Jesus. Look again at, at who they put him with when they crucify him. Verse 32, Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. The world rejected Christ. They treated him not just neutral, they treated him like a criminal. That's the group that they put him with. And like Isaiah 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call good evil, who put darkness for light. That's what they did with Christ. These people deserve judgment, don't they? And judgment's a good thing 
As Christians, we should root for evil like this to be punished. This is Psalm 58, verse 10. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance of the Lord. Well, it's a good thing that God's judgment is coming to these enemies of Jesus in our passage. But the significant thing for us to understand is that we would have been right there with them. We would have been right there with them. It's, it's easy to read a story like this and think, oh, I would have been the good guy. I would have been the one that stood up for Jesus. I would have been the one that was uh, that was raising opposition, saying, we, we can't do this. I would have been the holdout. But you wouldn't have been. There's a lot of Bible verses that teach what I just said, that that's true. Let's go to just one. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 10. In Romans 5, verse 10, it says that when Christ was dying, we were his enemies. Right? Now, Paul knows that everybody he's writing this letter to wasn't there at the crucifixion. Even in the first century, they weren't. He knows that in future times, obviously, people will read this letter that weren't there, that weren't even alive yet. So what is he saying? Well, we understand. He's saying that before the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and brought us to trust in Christ, we were his enemies. We were opposed to the Son of God. And, and see, if God hadn't softened your heart to believe the gospel, you would be rejecting him still. I would be rejecting him still. So, so if you or I was in the story of Luke 23, we would have been doing the same things as this crowd. We would have either been attacking Christ actively or attacking him passively by just letting it happen and just watching. We're, we're sinners. The people in this story, they deserve no more judgment than we deserve. When the criminal on one side of Jesus makes those demands to Christ, look at how the other criminal responds. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. So the Bible makes it clear, sinful deeds merit judgment. That's the right thing to have happen. Sin deserves judgment. God's judgment is the due reward of our deeds, the word says here. And if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, I wonder if you've thought about that. I wonder if you, if you see that clearly, that you, just like all of us, you're a sinner, which just means you have failed to always love God perfectly. You have failed to always love other people perfectly. That's all the Bible means when it calls us a sinner. Well, the due reward for your deeds is the judgment of God that Jesus talks about at the beginning of our passage. The judgment that will be so bad you would rather have a mountaintop land on your head than stand underneath it. And that's the position that you members of Cornerstone Baptist Church used to be in. That's the position that I used to be in. Just like the people in this story who put Jesus on the cross, we made ourselves enemies of Christ. So remember that you deserve this judgment. But the final point, we know this, those of us who are Christians, there's good news. There's good news here. It's our final point this morning. Praise Jesus that he has saved you from this judgment. So in our passage, there's at least one person watching the crucifixion of Christ who will get to avoid the judgment of God. One person other than Christ, obviously. And he had a front row seat for the whole thing. And it's one of these criminals. It's one of these criminals that's hanging next to Jesus. 
Look back down at verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come to your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Okay, so right off the bat, what's Jesus talking about here? You know, are, are he and the thief going to get down off their crosses and go take a vacation at the coast? No, obviously not. He doesn't mean that. No, we understand what he means. They're both going to end up dying on the crosses. We see that in just a few verses. He's saying once they die, Christ and this repentant thief will both be in heaven. That's what he's talking about when he says, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, now heaven is the opposite of judgment. But we've already established that, that sinners deserve judgment. And this thief, by his own admission, is a sinner. He deserves punishment. He deserves conviction. So how do we make sense of this? How is this sinful thief able to avoid judgment that comes on sinners, himself being a sinner? That's exactly what the final section of our passage is meant to explain. Verse 44 and following. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. So, so as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, it's around noon. The sky gets dark, and then it stays dark for, for three hours. Now why did God do that? And why does Luke note that? And the gospel writers, they don't give us details that are superfluous. They give us details that matter, that we're supposed to see how these things work. So, so why this darkness? Well, it symbolizes something. And what it symbolizes is God's judgment. You see that imagery over and over in the Bible. Darkness, especially darkness in the sky, symbolizes God's judgment. Luke notes this in Acts 2. Peter's preaching a sermon there in Acts 2. You might remember this. He quotes from the prophet Joel. And this is what he says. It's Acts 2, verse 20. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes. It's talking about God's coming judgment. So the darkness during the crucifixion, it's symbolizing, it's picturing God's judgment. Verse 48. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. See what we see there, it's not judgment on the crowds and on the soldiers, they all leave. So we've got God's judgment is pictured, it's symbolized there with that darkness, but the bad guys end up leaving. They end up going home, they're fine. None of them are judged. So who is it that's being judged? Well, it's Christ, it's Jesus. He's the one who's being judged. He, he went to the cross so he could take our place and be judged, not for his sins, be judged for our sins. The darkness symbolizes God's judgment, and that judgment landed on Christ. That's what our congregational reading was about a little bit earlier. This is part of it, Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So we deserve to be cursed by God. We deserve to hang on the cross, to hang on a tree. 
But Jesus stepped in our place. He suffered on the cross and took the curse of God on himself. He paid the penalty for our sins. Now look again what that has gained us. Verse 44. He was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So remember, the, the temple, it was the center of religious life for Israel. That's where the sacrifices took place that at least temporarily covered the people's sins, but pushed it off until Christ could come to make the full payment. It's where God's presence was. And in particular, God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. You may have heard that term before. If you're not familiar with it, that was the center of the temple. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was with the Ten Commandments. In God's presence, His Spirit was said to come and dwell there on top of the Ark. But you might remember, if you're familiar with the Bible, just anybody couldn't waltz in there. In fact, only one person could do it, and only once a year. It was the high priest after he went through a whole host, a crazy amount of washings and being made holy in various ways. And then he could go in there, one man, once a year. And that name, Holy of Holies, was fitting because God's presence is so holy. That's why somebody couldn't just walk in there. So the whole picture of the temple is that sinners don't belong behind the curtain. That's where God's holiness is, and we're too sinful. We can't go back there. But, but you can see what Jesus' crucifixion does here. It tears the curtain in two. It tears it in half. Through the cross, Jesus is making a way for sinful men and women to get to a holy God. That's what the cross is all about. It tears the curtain in two. In the words of verse 43, he's making a way for sinners to avoid judgment and get into paradise. The place that humankind has been had been exiled from all the way back in Genesis 3 because of our sins. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It picks up this theme. Hebrews 10, 19, therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So Jesus' gift of flesh on the cross has opened the curtain. It's opened the way for sinners like us to get to God. And of course, Jesus is the only one who could have done this. To, to, to be a perfect sacrifice, you have to be a perfect sacrifice, which means you, you have to live a life it's perfect. You have to perfectly love God and love others in order to be the right kind of sacrifice to stand in the place and, and pay for the sin of sinners. And see, that was Jesus. We've seen it all throughout the Gospel of Luke. He always loved God perfectly, always loved other people perfectly. In fact, look at the, the last thing Luke records Jesus saying. Verse 46, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Think about how incredible that is. Think about the temptation of not trusting your father when you've been hanging on the cross for six hours, when you're suffering under God's judgment. It would be easy to turn away and not trust in the Lord. Jesus does the opposite of that. He says, into your hands I commend, I commit my spirit. He always perfectly trusted God, even when he's hanging on the cross. He was the only one who, who could take on the darkness of the cross because he was the only one that was a perfect sacrifice. But but one more thing to note in terms of the cross, the salvation that's available in Jesus, it's, it's not automatic. If it was automatic, these crowds and these people and these soldiers, they would have all been saved too, but, but they weren't. So what's significant about this criminal who's saved? Well, what did he do that was different? It's certainly not his record. 
right? He was a thief. He was condemned to die because of his crimes. His morality or his virtue, that's not why Jesus' work spared him the judgment of God. He was a British pastor in the beginning of the 20th century. His name was Arthur Pink. Listen to what he says about this thief and about his moral efforts and, and how he was saved. Pink says, what could he do? He could not walk in the paths of righteousness, for there was a nail through either foot. He, he could not perform any good works, for there was a nail through either hand. He could not turn over a new leaf and live a better life, for he was dying. So the way the world thinks about how we become right with God is by doing good things and being a good person. This guy didn't have any opportunity to do any of that. He was moments away from death. No, you, you know what led to his salvation? It came because he saw that his sin was a problem and Jesus was the only solution. He, he believed the gospel. In the language of the Bible, he repents and he believes in Christ. Look again at, at what he says there. He says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he's asking for pardon. It's almost like a criminal who his friend is about to, to win an election to be governor where he can pardon criminals. And that criminal says to his friend, Please remember me when, when you become governor and you're in the position where you can pardon me. That's the thing that this thief is doing. And see, that response brings salvation. And it's that simple today. If you're here and you're not a Christian, all you have to do is realize that you're a sinner. And that sinner puts you in the seat of, of somebody who deserves God's judgment. Your, your biggest problem, it's not something outside of you, the way our world talks. You know, it's inside of you. Your, your problem is your heart. And your only solution is outside of you, and that's Christ. Trusting in Christ alone, that, that's the way to be saved. That's the way to, to be with Jesus in paradise one day. And if you want to talk more about that, come talk to me or one of the other pastors after the service or, or email me. We can talk about the gospel so that you can, you can believe in Christ and be with him in paradise one day. And for us as Christians, this, this is Jesus' exact word to us. It's the word he spoke to you the moment you first believed. Whether that was one year ago or 60 years ago, his word to us is, you will be with me in paradise. That's an incredible thing. His word to us as Christians is, you will be with me in paradise. Now, as we close, let's, let's see just a few ways that word should be helpful to us. That phrase in particular, where he declares to us, you will be with me in paradise. Three things. First of all, that, that sentence, it should help us to attack our pride when we remember that. So sometimes it's easy as a Christian to look down at those around us who don't know the Lord or look at other Christians that we think are less mature than us, and maybe they are less mature, and we think, oh, I'm better than they are. But see, we, we have to remember the only reason that we know the Lord, the only reason we have any good things spiritually is because of the Lord. He's the one who gave those things to us. So just think about this criminal. Remember, there's two criminals next to Jesus. They both probably had similar upbringings. They certainly had similar histories as criminals. And what they knew about Jesus was exactly the same between the two of them. They have both just seen front row the same things. They've seen what's been done to Jesus. They've seen the way he responded to him or that he responded to them and to this situation rather. But one of them believes and one of them doesn't. Why is that? Is it because that one thief was really smart and the other one was dumb? No, it's not because he was more humble or more virtuous. It's because God opened his eyes. It's because God granted salvation to him. 
It's just like we see in Romans 9. This is why it's so helpful. There's those two twins, you remember, Jacob and Esau? The fact that they're twins, that's, that's no coincidence. That's not insignificant. They have the same genes. They have the same parents. They have the same upbringing. And yet Jacob trusts in the Lord and Esau doesn't. And Romans 9 tells us why. It's because God chose Jacob. He opened his eyes. It's all of God's grace. So remember, the only reason you ended up like the believing criminal and not like the unbelieving criminal is because of God's grace. Because he came and got you. And that should be a humbling thing for us. So use Jesus' word to attack your pride. Second, use that word, you'll be with me in paradise. Use his word there to attack your sin. So the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, he, even though he's been, given, he's been given salvation, he's still a sinner. And I'm, I'm sure he was tempted to sin in the moments after that because he's a sinner. Do you think he used those words of Jesus to help him to turn from sin? I am sure he did. I'm sure that's what he was keeping in mind. I'll be with Christ in paradise just a little bit longer and I'll be with Christ in paradise. The, the lie we oftentimes believe is, is that sin will bring us real satisfaction and peace and comfort. That's why we sin, because we think it's going to bring something good for us. But, but that's not true, right? It does just the opposite. Sin can't give you paradise, but Jesus can. And so when you're tempted as a Christian to sin, remember that sin won't provide you with satisfaction. But heaven and God's eternal presence with no sin or suffering or death Heaven will. So you can leverage this sentence to help you turn away from sin. When you're tempted to sin, think to yourself, whatever this sin is offering me, Jesus is offering me paradise. But wouldn't I rather have that? Think about that. Use Jesus' word here to, to attack your sin. And finally, use his word here to attack your fear. This thief was about to die. Scary thing. His physical life was, was about to leave him. And Jesus doesn't make any promise about that being easy. But he does promise him that on the other side of that hard thing is paradise. And that he'll be with Christ for all eternity. In, in other words, the pain will be worth it. And that's Jesus' word to us as Christians. No matter what kind of difficulty we're going through in this life, you might have things going on that are so hard right now. Your life right now could be harder than it has ever been before. Harder than most people that you know. But as a believer in Jesus, his, his word tells you, you will be with me in paradise. Your destiny is secure. Like the thief requests of, of Jesus, he will remember you. The song we're about to sing has a line where we say, your name is written on his hands. But through his work on the cross, he, he bore the judgment you deserve. And he tore the curtain of the temple in two so he could bring you to himself in paradise for all eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful for the good news of the gospel. We're so thankful for the cross that has made a way to do something that nothing else could have, a way for sinners like us to get brought to you. And, and not brought to you for a day or for a conversation or, or like the high priest where you can go in for a little bit, but only once a year. No, the cross is so good your blood is so sufficient that it, it brings us into your presence for all eternity. We look forward to that day, Father. We pray that it would come soon. We pray that you would use the truth of the gospel to sustain us spiritually in the meantime. Now take a moment where you're sitting. Pray individually now that the Lord would press these truths on your heart. Let's pray that 
individually, silently now. Amen. Let's stand together and let's respond by singing about the goodness of the gospel of the cross that you for us. We'll sing before the throne.